13 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us now from your word, open our hearts to hear the things that you would say to us. Lord, we need your spirit to give us ears to hear, to give us hearts that believe, and give us lives that obey what you have commanded of us. So we pray that you would instruct us, speak to us now, in Jesus' holy name, amen. amen. So over the past uh, few ma- months, we've been looking at the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And the first six chapters of Exodus have really talked about two main things. The first is about the situation of the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt and the hardships that they were enduring. And the the other main topic of the first six chapters is about God calling Moses to come and deliver his people out of slavery. Um, We now come to a a transition in the story. And if you were here last week, you know that we read a big, long list of names as part of the the sermon in in Exodus chapter 6. And that list of names was the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, or the two main characters in the story of Exodus. And if you're familiar with the early books of the Bible, genealogies always mark a transition in the story. And the transition that's happening right now into Exodus is we're coming into a section where we will read about the famous ten plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt when he was delivering his people. And if you know those plagues, the, the Nile River turns to blood and there's, there's flies and frogs and locusts that come all over the land and all the livestock the Lord strikes down and the sky goes dark and people get boils all over their bodies and then ultimately the firstborn sons of all the families of Egypt die. 
And so um, there are roughly six chapters of plagues in this section of Exodus. So over the next month or so, we're going to be looking at plagues. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Uh, And Pastor Daniel, uh, Pastor Nathaniel Thompson, who's our RUF college minister here, uh, and I are going to be going through these plagues, and we're going to be talking about some of the main themes. And let me just tell you, you know, in the ancient world, you don't spend six chapters of papyrus on stories that aren't important. So there's a reason that God has given this many pages of these stories. And so we're going to look at some of those major themes. And the major themes that come up in the ten plagues are actually in this paragraph, this short passage I just read this morning, which serves as kind of like a preface to these ten plagues that are coming. And you can see a few of those main themes. If you look at verse 3, look at what it says. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart big theme. If you know later in the Bible, that's something that the Bible talks about, that it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's a big question about God's sovereignty and our our salvation, and so I'm going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks, and then it goes on in verse 3, and it says, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me. That language of signs and wonders another important theme in the Bible that whenever God does great redemptive acts in history, he always accompanies it with miraculous signs and wonders. That was true in the Exodus. That was true in the Gospels. When Jesus comes, he does all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders to show who God is. So Daniel's going to talk about that in December. And then going on in verse 4, it says, the Lord says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, chapter 12 of Exodus tells us that the act of judgment that God is doing there is against the gods of Egypt. And so God is showing himself to be greater than all the gods of Egypt. If you know the Nile River is the great uh, god of Egypt, and God's going to turn it to blood, and he's going to show that he is the sovereign lord over all creation and all the gods of the pagan gods, that he is the supreme lord. And so Nathaniel is going to talk a little bit about that next week as as he looks at uh, the, the story about uh, the Nile turning to blood. And so for the next month, we are going to be looking at these magnificent ancient acts of God that are recorded for us in Exodus. And as you read them, as uh, modern people, as we read them, we are going to be thinking, wow, these are fantastic things that are happening. Did this really happen? Can God really do things like this, supernatural, miraculous events in the creation? Well, that question is not just a modern question. Uh, That would have been a huge question for Moses and Aaron. As they're going to face Pharaoh, they're asking the question of, can God do all these things? Does God have my back as I go and face Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go? And yet, this passage, in the beginning of chapter 7 of Exodus, we see that Moses and Aaron... Obey the Lord and do what he says, and they trust him. And so uh, I think that this passage that we just read from Exodus 7 tells us some profound truths about what it means to live a life of obedience to God. And so this morning I want to lead us in a, a meditation on obedience by making four observations from this passage, four observations this morning. This is what they are. Obedience begins with faith. 
Second, obedience is in details. The details of what God has commanded are important. Third, obedience is generally in the face of doubt. We have a lot of reasons to doubt when we're called to, to obey, and yet we still need to obey God. And then the last one is that obedience is imputed. If you don't know that word imputed, we'll explain it when we get to the fourth point. So four things this morning. Obedience begins with faith. Obedience is in the details. Obedience is in the face of doubt. And lastly, obedience is imputed to us. Okay, so four things this morning on obedience. The first is this. Obedience begins with faith. And I can't tell you how important this first point is, that obedience always comes from a posture of trusting God and believing in Him. That's a huge truth for the life of our church and what our church is about. And you'll notice that this passage begins with a command for Moses and Aaron. See what it says in verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. The Lord gives a command to Moses and Aaron, and then immediately the Lord lists off all the things that the Lord is going to do. So he gives a command to Moses and Aaron, but he says, but these are all the things I'm going to do. Don't forget this. He says, I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and I will lay my hand on the Egypt, and I'll bring my children out of the land of Egypt, and I will stretch out my hand against, against Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron's obedience is grounded in God's action, God's grace, God's promise to act. This is such an important truth. Obedience starts with a heart of trusting, not in what we do, but what God does. And what sin is, disobedience, is always comes from a place of not trusting God, right? If I don't believe that God is going to take care of me, that, you know, that God loves me, that I'm going to be defensive, I'm going to be critical of other people, or I'm going to lie, and I'm going to cheat, I'm going to steal. These are all ways of trying to protect myself. And it comes from a posture of not trusting that God is sufficient for me. Um, and so obedience to God is only born out of a deep abiding trust that God is sufficient, and so I have no need to go my own way. Let me give you an example of how this works. The Bible commands us, tells us, that love covers a multitude of sins. Or it is the glory of a, a man to overlook an offense. That should be a regular part of our life, is that our love is covering the sins of people that they do against us. And it causes us, you know, someone wrongs me, and say, you know, it's not a big deal, I'm, I'm, I'm going uh, you know, to overlook it. And why do we become people like that? You know, people that are hard to offend, people who always put the best spin on other people's intentions, um, who let wrongs go. How do you obey those commands? It comes by believing the gospel. When you say, well, God has overlooked so many of my sins, I can't even tell you how many sins. He, he, and he's covered them with his love. And God has done that, we, you know, not just before I was a Christian, but even after I was a Christian, over and over and over again, this is what God has done. And when my heart knows that, that God has covered so many of my sins, and someone wrongs me, how can I be bitter and hold grudges against them? If I've trusted in what the gospel has done for me, that changes my heart. It changes my inner life. It changes how you think. It changes how you see the world. 
And so one of the reasons, you know, some of you, if you've been coming to Christ Church for a while, you'll notice that all the sermons always end talking about Jesus and what he's done for us and talking about the gospel. And you say, you know, are you ever going to move on from the gospel? Are we going to, you know, get to the deeper stuff? Isn't that, isn't that kind of the basics of what the Christian life is? Absolutely not. The gospel is the thing that we're all spending our whole life learning to rest in and trust in. And so when we as the leaders of the church say, how do we get all these people to obey God? You notice the answer is not to tell you all the time, obey God, obey God, obey God. The answer is to tell you this is what God has done for you. These are all God's promises. This is God's faithfulness and goodness. This is why you can trust in him because those are the things that change your heart and cause you to let go of your own life and trust in God's provision. That's what makes you risking. That's what makes you loving. That's what makes you sacrificial. That's what makes you kind. It comes from believing in the Lord. And so obedience begins with faith in God's faithfulness and goodness. That is the thing that changes your life. Okay? Important part about obedience. But you might hear that and think that obedience then, oh, is, is just kind of generally trusting in God's goodness, in a kind of a spiritual feeling but obedience is not having general feelings of goodwill and love towards others. Obedience is doing what God said. And that's the second point, is that obedience is in the details. And there's an emphasis in this passage on Moses and Aaron being careful to follow the Lord's commands. You see that in verse 6? It says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. And, and then God commands Moses and Aaron to do something very specific when they go to face Pharaoh. Look at what it is. Something very specific. Then the Lord said to Aaron, uh, Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. This is how I want you to handle that situation. You're going to be confronted with Moses. I have a specific way I want you to handle it. And it says again in verse 10, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. There is a careful, detailed obedience to what the Lord has said. Now, I think it is common for Christians to not generally think that way. That we are supposed to take the words of our Lord, the words of Jesus, and put them into practice and actually do what he said and commanded them. So, for example, you know, I was reading an interview with C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis had um, a couple weeks ago. I was reading. I was reading this interview, and uh, the, one of the questions that the interviewer asked was this: "What is your view of the daily discipline of the Christian life? The need for taking time to be alone with God?" I thought it was a pretty practical question about, you know, how do you, you spend time with God? How do you work that into your life? Do you think that's important? This is how C.S. Lewis answered. It was surprising to me. He said, we have our New Testament regimental orders. We are soldiers. We have our regimental orders on this subject. I would take it for granted that everyone who becomes a Christian would undertake this practice. It is enjoined upon us by our Lord. And since they are his commands, I believe in following them. It is always possible that Jesus Christ meant what he said when he told us to seek the secret place and to close the door. 
Now, what he's talking about, he's talking about a place in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you know, when you pray, don't pray out in public where everyone can see you. You can find, you know, go in your closet or a secret room because your Father sees you in secret when you're praying. And he's saying, I think God, Jesus intends that we're actually going to find a secret place where no one sees where we are and we're going to pray to our Father. That is something we're going to do. And there are other things like that in the, ser- uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that are explicit commands. You know, when he says, uh, you know, uh, don't get angry with your brother, he says, if you come to church and you're going to present your gift at the altar and you remember, you know, there's this lingering feeling in your mind, someone in church has something against me. They're upset with me. I wronged them. I, I got short with them. I offended them. You remember that? You better resolve that before you come to church. You got a deadline. That means I need to call them or send them an email and say, could we have coffee? I want to straighten up how I wronged you. And you got a deadline for it. I think he actually intends us to do that. That's not just a general idea about, you know, being loving and forgiving of people. He gives us commandments in orders to, uh, of things to do. Um, or again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Pray for those who persecute you so that you will be like your Father in heaven. That means if you have someone who has really wronged you and, I mean, hurt you, maybe abused you, that's persecution. He says you are commanded to pray for them, that God would bring good things into their life and bless your enemy. That's not just a, oh, isn't that a sweet Hallmark card about blessing your enemies? That's a good idea for the world to just all love each other. No, that is a a commandment. Those are regimental orders of how we handle it when someone hurts us. That's at least one thing that we are supposed to do is we are supposed to pray for good things to be brought into their life. Do we put the words of Jesus into practice? Um, And I believe that many Christians have neglected to take the words of Jesus seriously. And so this is a question for our our lives, is that how you approach your life of being principled? There are certain things that the Bible says to do, and I'm just going to do them because that's what my master says. I don't have a choice. So I do it. It's not whether it feels right. It's not whether it feels good. It's because he's commanded me to do it. That's what obedience looks like. So our first point is that you can only, uh, only truly obey God if you have a confidence and a faith in his goodness and promises. But second, God expects us to give care that we obey him in the details and the specific things that he's commanded of us. But often God's commands will feel strange. They won't feel like necessarily the right thing to do. They'll be uncomfortable. And that leads to a third point, is that obedience generally happens in the face of doubt. Obedience generally happens in the midst of doubt. And again, this is a really important Point for us as people living in the modern world. I've been uh, reading a book recently by Peter Berger. Peter Berger was a, a sociologist. He just died this last year at, at Boston University called The Many Altars of Modernity. And one of the things that uh, Peter Berger has observed is that about 100 years ago, many Western modern people had said, you know, with the growth of modern science and technology, basically the modern world is going to spread to the globe and religion is going to die out because we don't need religion anymore. We now have science. We know how to control the world. And they made this prediction that prosperity was going to come to the whole world and there would be no need for religion. So the 20th century would be the, the year that God dies, that religion dies. 
is remarkable how that prediction completely missed the mark. Uh, in the 20th century has been massive expansion of religion, both of Christianity, of religion, and you could say that the 20th century was the missionary century, that Christianity has grown more than it has in, in, in any other century. And what Berger says is that the modern world does not bring unbelief or make a society secular. What modernity brings is pluralism. And what pluralism means is that there are numerous belief systems that are radically different from each other that are living side by side. And so, for example, in the pre-modern world, a pre-modern person, you know, if you were living in Europe, it was like everyone you knew just believed that the Bible is true, believed in God, believed that Jesus rose again from the dead. That was just something, and you just took it for granted. In the modern world, there's no more just taking it for granted. And many of you experience that. You can see that being a Christian, doubt about the basic things about being a Christian might be a daily part of your life. You work with people who completely disagree with you. Or if you're a student, you have professors who think that what you believe is foolish. And so living side by side are these radically different belief systems about the world. And so the most quintessential aspect of living in the modern world is doubt. Now, in some ways, that's a blessing. You know, many of you have wrestled with doubt, and that's caused you to really search out, why do I believe the Bible? What does the Bible teach? Do I really understand this? And many of you understand the Bible in much deeper ways than maybe a pre-modern person would have. You know much more theology, because you've had to face this doubt. You've had to face this world that's challenging your faith. But this constant presence of doubt makes plain obedience to the Bible difficult. And uh, there are a couple doubts that show up in this passage. Okay? The first is you see the frailty of Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 7 where it says, Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. You just imagine the Lord unveiling, here is the one who's going to rescue you out of slavery, and you know, the veil comes, and out comes Moses, all wrinkly. It's an 80-year-old and an 83-year-old. These are the old guys who are going to rescue us from the, the world power. And, you know, tremendous amount of weakness. Can they remember everything? Well, you know, um, and I think that the weakness that God chooses about his servants is a cause of doubt. You know, some of you might feel that about the church. You know, you say, you know, the music out in the world seems to be a lot better than the music in the church, or, or the academics up in the universities, you know, they seem a lot smarter than my pastors. And so I, you know, that's a source of doubt for us. And Moses writes that his frailty into this story. He says that was an important part of the story. So that was, that was an aspect of doubt. How is this going to work? The second aspect of doubt were some intellectual problems. So Moses and Aaron you know, have this sign that they need to do before Pharaoh. And look, it says what happens, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same with their secret arts. So Moses and Aaron think, okay, I'm, I'm going to turn a staff into a snake. This is pretty amazing. And then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. And then they're going to go, oh, I thought God was special. I thought he was different than everyone else. And all of a sudden, he's not that different. 
You know, that might have been to you. Maybe you grew up in the church and you thought, I thought the church was so special. And then I met people who weren't Christians and they were way nicer and way more loving than the people I grew up in church with. Maybe God isn't that special. Maybe the Bible isn't that special. And I think the Lord is, of course, kind. He recognizes the doubt. Look at what happens with the snakes, right? So Aaron's got his snake and the magicians have their snake. In verse 12, it says... For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Which is the Lord saying, listen, I know there's a problem. I know there's an intellectual problem for you. How are the Egyptians doing this? I'm going to swallow up their stakes so you continue to trust me. But he doesn't totally take away the doubt. And the answer to both of these doubts in the book of Exodus is obedience. The answer to doubt is obedience. The 80-year-old and the 83-year-old go forth and they trust God and they find out that God is the powerful one. They didn't need to be powerful. God chose 80-year-olds to show that God is the one who has power. And it confirms even more their faith. And the magicians, maybe early on, can kind of imitate what Moses and Aaron are doing. That is going to change as we go through the plagues. And they're not going to be able to imitate and they say, sorry, we can't do the things that their God is doing. The answer to doubt comes through obedience. You can't understand the Bible unless you obey it. You can't separate doing and knowing. John Calvin puts it this way, true knowledge of God is born out of obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, only he who believes is obedient That's our first point, right? Only if you trust in the gospel and God's promises will you obey. And only he who is obedient believes. You will not find out about God's faithfulness. You will not find out about the truth of his promises unless you have ventured on him. You've risked and trust him and says, I will obey my master. I'll take my regimental orders and I will find in the midst of it that God is sufficient for me. So faith and obedience must go together. And so in this passage, we have Moses and Aaron as great models of men who had faith, they obeyed God in the details and in the face of doubt. But one of the things that the Bible recognizes is our proclivity to not obey God. We tend to not obey Him. And in many ways, we not only need uh, to obey, but we need someone to obey for us. Someone who trusts God and obeys every detail of his commandments does not shrink in the face of doubt. And this leads to our last point, is that obedience is imputed. Obedience is imputed. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, a common question that I'll often ask as we're studying the Bible together is, who are we in this passage? Where should we find ourselves in this passage? Who should we identify with? And our default is, of course, to identify with Moses. I'm supposed to be like Moses. Moses obeyed, and I'm supposed uh, to be like him. And I don't think that's wrong, but that's probably not the most important reading of this text. Because this uh, this whole scene is a confrontation between God's chosen leader and the one who has enslaved God's people. So who are we in the passage? I think verse 5 tells us. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. We are not Moses. 
We are the people who were enslaved. We are the people that Moses' obedience is rescuing. Because the Bible will go on later to tell us that this whole story of Israel being enslaved in Egypt is a picture of the state of humanity. You know, Israel was enslaved in Egypt. Humanity as a whole is enslaved to sin. All of us disobey God and we can't even control it. Sin, you know, bitterness towards others, grudges, uh, tearing another one down, being competitive, um, you know, anger and envy, all of these things just pour out of our hearts. That is our nature and we are enslaved to a sinful nature. And just as Moses came as the obedient one who would rescue the enslaved people, Jesus came as the greater Moses who obeyed God perfectly, who obeyed God in all the ways that we don't. He has freed us from sin. And what imputed means is that Jesus' perfect obedience has been put to our account. It's been credited to us. So that Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived in our place, and he died the death that we should have died in our place. And what this means is that if you have faith in Christ, you don't obey God so that he will love you. You obey because God has already loved you so abundantly in Christ. That is a huge part of what our church is about. You don't obey so God will love you as we were loved first. Jesus obeyed first for us while we were still sinners. And so we obey as a response of love. Obedience is no longer just some cold duty. The Bible said to do it, so you better do it. No. Jesus has cherished you. Jesus has died for you. And it is a response of affection. It is how we say to Jesus, You have loved me with your obedience, so I will love you with mine. It's crucial that we understand obedience in accord with the gospel. It is a response to God's grace. Let's pray together.